I see Mr. Tim back there. Here. As they leave, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Uh, I hope that you have been, you have picked up, well, there's Pastor Luke. What are you doing here? So anyways, good to have you here. So that's always a surprise you stand up, you see somebody. So I'd say stand up, but we don't want you getting up and down. Okay. So anyway, I hope that you have joined our reading in the book of Genesis. If you did not get a book last week, you can pick up one on the way out today. And we only done five chapter so it's, you can get caught up pretty quickly a chapter a day five days a week so we'll read in the 10 weeks we'll read through the book of genesis and each sunday i'll bring a message out of a portion of what you read uh during that week last week we looked at the creation and uh, the, the miraculous work of god when it came to creation god made man for himself he made man in his own image he created man for himself the reason we exist is to bring glory to god we are uh, without trying to sound conceited at all, or we are the crowning achievement, if you will, of, of God's creation. Man is a special creation of God. We are the only part of creation that's referred to as those who are created in the very image of God. God created us to have a relationship with Him. God created us to have have that that ability to walk with Him and to hear from Him, to respond to Him. These these are the reasons God created us. Man was created in perfection. That is. We were able to have perfect fellowship with God, clearly hear his, his voice without any filters at all, to experience God really, we would almost say, in the first person. But man had the opportunity or the ability, if you will, to make a choice. And unfortunately, the first man made a choice contrary to God. Look with me in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at several things this morning. But first of all, before we even get into the scripture that I have on your outline, I, I have to read verse 15 with you, because this is important. We're going to start here. There's good news when we, even when we talk about sin, is what I want you to know. Look at verse 15 there, and here's what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now he's talking to the serpent at this time. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And they're, the, the seed, are, they're going to be at enmity, at odds with one another. Basically what Moses is describing for us here is the conflict or the, uh, well, I'll just use that word, conflict between Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, and Satan, who is the seed of the serpent. He's going to talk about that. But look at what's going to happen. Okay? Right at the beginning, God's going to tell you who's going to get the victory. So what he says here, the last part of verse 15, he will bruise, he shall bruise your head, head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations actually says, and he will crush your head as you bruise his heel. So the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is that God has made a provision, already has made a provision for the sin of mankind. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the reality of sin. And I want you to get this today because I, I am convinced that the world makes so little of sin. We treat it as something as close to being meaningless, something that's sort of benign. It, it really is not that big a deal. And we've learned to justify and we've learned to rationalize sin as if we're not that big of a deal. So let's look at this. 
Look with me at verse 11 through 13, and here's what he says. And he said, that is God. He said to the, to the humans, to Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat? Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. When we read this, and sometimes we read it almost from a storybook perspective, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a terrible way to read the scripture. Because what we have a tendency to do is we, we try to make it this little cute story. Even the fall of man into a little cute story. There's this tree, this apple tree. For some reason, they chose apple tree. And it's sitting in the middle of, of the garden. And man decides, well, you know what? I just need a bite of that apple. And, and so the woman takes a bite of the apple. She hands it to the man, and he takes a bite of the apple. And there's a fall, and then all the other things happen. It's almost almost too cutesy. But in reality, what is happening here is you have full-blown rebellion by mankind at that time against God. And it's not a small thing. And even at the place of, of the beginnings, at the place of what was once perfection, when man is caught in his disobedience and, 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 and in his rebellion and in his sin, the first place he runs to is to blame somebody else. Anybody else done that besides me? We blame somebody else. God says to the man, why have you done that? He says, because you gave me a woman. And she led me to it. And if you think about that, he is blaming two people there. He's blaming the woman, and he's blaming God. God, if you wouldn't have given me that woman, I'd be okay right now. Don't go there, guys. Okay? So he says to the woman, what is it that you have done? And she says, well, it's the serpent. For the serpent tempted me, and I took of it. It is true. It is universally true from the very beginning to where, whenever we get to the end that mankind will always run to blaming everybody but themselves for their rebellion against God. And wh- let me tell you, what can never happen in anybody's individual life or in a, group, in a group setting, what can never happen is salvation can never happen until we as individuals are willing to take responsibility for our own rebellion, our own sin. Our own disobedience to God. If I disobey God, it doesn't matter what else you do that may influence me to do that. If I disobey God, that's on me. It's time to stop blaming other people. Well, if they wouldn't have treated me bad, I wouldn't have treated them bad. If they wouldn't have cursed me, I wouldn't have cursed them. If they wouldn't have hated me, I wouldn't have hated them. We can get, we can play that game all day long. I think Jesus kind of covered that up. He said, you know what? If someone's your enemy, what are you supposed to do? to love them. No, Jesus, we can't love them. In our study this morning, he said that he, he instructed, Peter instructed us that we are not to give evil for evil. We're to pray for those who would harm us. We're to ask God to bless those who would despitefully use us. I can't do that. You're right, you can't, but Jesus in you can do that. Can't blame until we're ready to take accountability for our own sin, we will never know what even our own need for Jesus. We've learned to rationalize. 
We've learned to justify. And those things are never acceptable to God. And sin to God is a huge thing, church. It's a huge thing. Well, pastor, you need to understand that my sin isn't quite as big as theirs over there. This is a section of great sinners. This is a section of moderate sinners. This is a section of of, of intermediate sinners. And you all are just beginners over here. But aren't you glad that you're not as bad as this group over here? That's the tendency we have when it comes to sin. Isn't it true? I'm not as bad as other people are. God has called us to a place of accountability when it comes to sin because God always sees sin as huge. Why? Because Remember what I said at the beginning. Because God created us in his image for himself to walk in relationship and harmony and, and experience God without any, any filters. But sin destroyed all that. Sin broke it all down. Sin literally separated us from God, our creator. Once again, praise God that in his love and his mercy, he sent his son that we could once again be called the very children of God and have that relationship with him. But church, before we leave here today, I want you to see how serious sin is. I don't care what the pundits say. I don't care what the political people say. I don't care what the world says. I don't care all the rationalization that goes on around. I don't even care what religious people say when they try to tell you it's okay to do and live any way that you want. It is not okay. Say, Pastor, what are you doing? Calling us into holiness? Well, the Bible does. And you know by now that the only way that you and I can walk in the holiness that God has called you is to be live, live our life submitted and surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. His life through us brings us into that place of holiness. Rebellion pushes him away. Disobedience pushes him away so that we're not capable of living that life. Even if we think or we can convince ourselves that we're doing better than other people are. Let's look at this passage here, mostly in chapter 3, but we'll also be a little bit in chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3, it says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now you have an adversary of your soul. You Listen, you have a demonic, evil, conniving, deceptive being that hates your guts. I know it's not right for a pastor to say guts, but he hates your guts. He hates everything about you. There's nothing about the, you he likes. Now, he might just come up alongside you and kind of smooth you a little bit and say, hey, I got, a, I got the best for you. But he's just there for your destruction. He's just there to tear you, you apart, to tear your family apart, to tear this church apart, to tear society apart. That's what he's all about. He's about death and destruction. And he is the most, he is the most deceived being that's ever been, that's ever lived. And he is the most deceiving being that, that ever, but he hates you. And you know why he hates you? You know why he hates you? Anybody know why he hates you? Because he hates your God. He hates God. He hates everything about God. 
He can't stand God. He can't stand Jesus. He hates him. And if you love God, he hates you. And he is active every day seeing what he can do to lead God's people astray so that we might trust in what he has to say rather than trusting in what God has already established and God has already said. You need to know, the Bible says that we are not ignorant concerning the devices of the devil. I think we are. Paul tells us he would not have us ignorant. But it seems like we have convinced ourselves, first of all, for many Christians, they don't even believe in a devil. No such thing as the devil, no such thing as demons, no such thing as hell. We've convinced ourselves that, that those things don't exist anymore. You know what? You can say that all day long. Doesn't change the fact that there is a personal devil who hates you and hates God. There are demons who who are working uh, day and night to destroy your family, to destroy your walk, destroy the church. And by the way, if you trust in that voice rather than trust in the voice of the Holy Spirit of God, there is a hell, and you will know it for sure. Oh no, you guys really believe in hell? You bet. But I believe it's a place for the devil and his demons, not for human beings. I believe God created hell for that, according to what we're told in the book of Matthew. Jesus came for us. As you look at this, you need to know what the, how the devil works. And I, I think this is how he always works, in one way or another. He begins by drawing us in. He begins by, you know, when you start to listen, when you start to entertain him, when you start to, you know... Let's sit down and talk with the devil for a while. Let's welcome the devil into our home for a while. Let's welcome the devil into our conversations for a while. Let's see what the devil's up to. As if we can sit down and rationalize it, we'll be okay and we'll be able to overcome. That's how he begins. He begins, he begins by, by drawing us in. Well, I, 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 I pretty much believe, 98% believe, that if you have a price... The devil's willing to pay it. You know, he doesn't have to pay too much for a lot of us. Sometimes it's just being willing to sit down at the table of compromise with the enemy of your soul and just listen to him. There's no reason for you to have a conversation with the devil. There's no reason. There's no reason for you to sit down and talk with him. Hey, devil, what's up? What are you doing? Can we work this out? No, you can't work it out. There are some enemies you don't sit down with. There are some enemies that you stand against always. It's not a place of compromise when it comes to the enemy of our soul. But somehow we human beings think that we can sort of sit down with him. And that's what he does. First, he always begins to draw us in. And he'll do what needs to be done to draw us in. And to begin even to, to gain some of our confidence. It's what he did with Eve. He met, there, met her there in the garden, according to the scripture here. And the first thing he begins to do, you know, Eve, has God really said? He wants to have a conversation with the woman. God really said this? You shall not eat of the tree? And Eve's first mistake was to begin to have a conversation with him. To try to figure this out. To listen to the enemy about what God said and about what God meant. Do not be mistaken. One of the great theological minds of all times is Satan. 
Do not be mistaken. He has ministers and he has preachers and he has pastors and he has priests that know that book. Do you not understand when, G- when Satan came against Jesus himself, he corrupted and he perverted the, the word of God itself to try to tempt the Son of God. There's no reason to sit down at that table. He begins by drawing us in. After he's got us in, he's got us sitting down, he's got us listening to him. The next thing that he likes to do is, is, is that he likes to, to contradict God. Look at verse 4. What's he say there? You will not surely die. Wait a minute. God said you will die. Satan says you will not surely die. Who's right? Now, here's what I want you to understand. To the woman at that time who had already sat down at the, at the table compromised with the enemy, it wasn't a matter who was going to be right. It became a matter what she wanted to do. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Nor is he omnipresent. Nor is he all-powerful. Those are attributes that belong to God. But here's what I'll tell you. In some six to 10,000 years of human history, Satan, has, Satan knows human beings. He knows what we're like. He knows what, we, he knows what we like. He knows what we want. And he knows how to use those things to get us. If we'll sit down and listen to him, he's very good. He's a deceiver. As I said, and he will always, Satan will, it will always get to the place where Satan will contradict what God said. It will always get to that place. When you sit down with the apostate churches and apostate teachers and apostate religious leaders, and they say, we need to sit down and have a conversation about whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. You understand there are conversations that go on like that. You understand that there are denominations that meet and they talk for hours upon hours about whether or not Jesus truly is the Son of God, whether He is God in the flesh. They have these conversations. To sit down at the table of such a conversation is already a place of compromise. Because for the most part, you can't get up and walk away from that table with everybody happy unless you're willing to compromise what the truth is. There are conver- listen church, there are conversations we ought not to ever have. There are things that God has already settled. And we need to stand upon God's truth. Because the enemy will always get to place in whatever conversation you're in, he will always get to the place where he will I guarantee it, he will contradict God. You say, Well, I'm smarter than he is. I know what the truth is. I can sit down with him and I can sit down with these groups and I'll be okay and stuff like that. Well, really. Well, look at the third thing that he does when he, when, when he attacks us. The third thing, look, look at verse five. He says, now, now look, look at how he treats God. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. Now look at what the, what the, what the, the deceiver does. He makes God into an insecure and an inadequate being in our minds. He wants to turn God into this, this, this insecure, this, 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 this God that's really inadequate to be who He is or to say what He is. Somehow God's mistaken. Somehow God doesn't have all the information. 
I read something a, a, a few days ago where, where, where someone had actually said, well, you know, if, if you Christians are going to trust, trust this, this antiquated book written by a bunch of people out of the, well, I think the first, the first statement was the Bronze Age, and then he moved to the Steel Age or the Iron Age. I, I'm surprised he didn't go all the way back to the Stone Age. As somehow these people were spiritually and intellectually inferior to us, and even to attack the, the inspiration of the Scripture itself, as if God didn't know what man would be like in 2016. It kind of snuck up on him. And so we're allowed, in many people's mind, to change what is true, what is right, what is holy, what is, what is good, what is godly, because somehow we have convinced ourselves that we're smarter than God is. And, and he, in many people's minds, is this old gentleman with a long white beard sitting up on, on a throne somewhere, and he's not quite all there. Because he doesn't quite understand the time that we live in. So somehow it's okay for us to, to change things. You see, how the enemy works, he, he tries to get you to sit down with him. Secondly, he tries to contradict God. But the third thing he does, you know, straight out saying God's not right, that, that would be kind of offensive to us. So, so what he wants you to do is say, somehow God is inadequate, folks. Somehow God doesn't really have it all together, so you can't really trust God. You have to trust your own voice. That's how the enemy works. And by the way, that's the very reason that though Satan is going to have his own issues when, when the time comes, if you and I give in to temptation, it's not really the devil's fault. It's our fault. Now, that's the next point that I want you to see there. Man has a choice. We have a choice on whose voice we're going to listen to, whose voice we're going to obey, whose voice we're going to respond to. Look at verse 6 there and see what this woman did, what Eve did. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And then the next thing she did, it says, and she also gave it to her husband and he ate. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Now, I'm going to say this again. We're already past halfway there when we sat down with the enemy. We move a little bit closer when we hear his voice and we receive anything that he says that says God can somehow be mistaken. And then we move right into a place of giving in to temptation when we, when we buy into the fact that somehow God missed something. Somehow something is incomplete and we got to fill in the spaces. It's at that point we're ready to make our own decisions. We see it and it looks good to the eye. As a woman, she saw it, she said, oh, it's good for food. There's nothing wrong with that fruit on that tree. I can eat it. My eyes tell me so. I'm going to ask you this before we move on. When it comes to the matter of sin, how many of you have ever had your eyes lead you astray? Your eyes lead you astray. It's a reality of who we are. And the enemy uses that, and, but, but it becomes our decision. We sit down with him. We listen to him. We receive his condemnation of God's truth. We receive his, his inferences or, or outright declarations that God somehow has missed something. And then we start making decisions that we think we're making on our own while we're responding to, to what we've been fed during that whole time. It looks good to us. 
Then she says, well, I can gain something from this. Somehow, God can't make me complete. And so, not only is the fruit pleasant to my eyes, but somehow, if I take this, if I, if I believe what this serpent is telling me, if I believe what this devil is telling me, somehow, this will give me something that I, that God never gave me. Somehow, I'll be more of a person. Somehow, I'll know some things that I could not know. Somehow, I'll experience something. I need to tell, you know, people of all ages that, that haven't given in to certain sin in their life and, and they will respond, well, I, you know, I can't really know unless I try it. What a terrible approach to life. So that's, a, that's a lie of the enemy. I can't really know if I try it. No, you can know because God has already said. It's just a matter of whose voice we're going to listen to. The Apostle Paul tells us, or we who are believers, that because of what Jesus Christ has done, we now are complete in him. Isn't it a strange thing? Man was complete in the garden. God God said it was good when he was done with man, which means it was perfect, which means it was wonderful, which means it was everything. They were everything that God intended them to be. It was good. They listened to the lie. They gave in to their own desire, and they believed somehow that God was holding back something from them. And the only way they could be complete is to take it for themselves. You need to understand that in the fall, man did not become complete. Man became empty. Man lost everything in the fall. And the only way for mankind to be complete again is through the Son of God, Lord Jesus Christ. So she sees it. She's convinced herself that she can gain something from it. But look at her in the last part of verse, verse, verse 5. And it says, and, 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 and it says, uh, verse 6, excuse me, it says, and she, she, she took of the fruit and she ate it. So she chose to do a willful act of disobedience and rebellion against God. Whose voice are you listening to today? Brothers and sisters, whose voices are you listening to? Are you sitting down at the table of the enemy? Are you discussing whether or not God is God and God has authority and God is right? Are you listening to voices that clearly are contradictory to God? Are you entertaining the thought that somehow God is inadequate and unable Have you moved into the phase already where you're making, you think you're making all your own decisions? And don't even realize that, that in many cases it's the, it's the ensnaring or the enslaving of sin that's making a lot of those decisions for us. When we talk about sin, it's important for us to talk about the impact of sin. And right here in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, God talks about the impact of sin. I want to share with you very quickly three things, and we'll close out our time this morning. Because as I said at the beginning, God makes a lot of sin. It's huge to him. Well, mankind makes so little of sin. And we could talk about, we talk about, uh, about what it can do in someone's life. It's important for you to understand that. The first thing you, need to, you and I need to understand is this. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, and the Lord heard the sound of, excuse, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord in the trees of the garden. 
Then the Lord God called out to Adam and said, where are you? You understand, something has changed. I don't think that that phrase was ever used before by, by God. And I don't think, it, I certainly don't think it's because God didn't know where Adam was physically. I don't buy that, that anybody can hide anything from God. And he wasn't challenging Adam to tell him something that he didn't know when he says, Adam, where are you? You understand? Let me just share this with you. When the Holy, we're going to jump ahead. When the Holy Spirit brought you to the place where you're about ready to trust in Jesus Christ, do you understand? He asked you that question. I don't remember that. In one way or another, he asked you that question. Because if he didn't ask that question, you would, again, would have never came to a place where you realized that you had a need for a Savior. Where are you? Are you right with God? Are you estranged from God? Are you walking in holiness and righteousness? Are you walking in, 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 in that which is contrary to God? Where are you? And God said to, to, to Adam, for the first time, again, I believe, Adam, where are you? So he, so, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Again, I think that's the first time he ever made any kind of statement like that. What's the impact of sin? The first thing the impact of sin is, is that it destroys our relationship with God. It's hard to imagine what, what Adam's relationship with God was like before this time. But here's what I do believe. I believe it was perfect. I believe he spoke directly to God and God spoke directly to him. I believe he experienced the presence of God as he walked in, the, in that beautiful garden that God had prepared for him. I believe he knew God intimately, and, 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 and God laid upon Adam's heart everything that was going on in, in, in God's heart. It, it, was, it was a, had to be a wonderful, wonderful place. And all of a sudden, sin. And the impact of sin does this. It, and let me tell you, it always does this. Sin always destroys our relationship with God. You say, well, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I have a relationship with God. Look, don't, don't be deceived, Christian. If we choose to go into sin, and I'm not talking about your eternal security right now, but I'm talking about your relationship with God. If we choose to go into sin, it will destroy our relationship with God. There are Christians that are so far away from God today that it's like they have no relationship with God at all. And they don't because they've chosen to go off the way of sin. The impact of sin is it will always destroy our relationship with God. Secondly, the impact of sin, record first, look at verses 17 through 19. It says, and, to, and then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat of bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You understand the impact of sin not only is very personal, but according to the Scripture, the impact of dis the disobedience of the first, first human it, it, it impacted the world itself. It impacted creation itself. It changed everything. Beautiful garden. Now, man will have to toil. The, the ground that once produced nothing but beautiful plants and, and, and wonderful, uh, a wonderful place to be. Now, now thorns and thistles and, and weeds and all these things would come. The, the earth itself changed because man was in disobedience to God and rebelled against God. 
And I remind you, let's bring it ahead to us very quickly. When we are in rebellion to God, it not only impacts our relationship with God, but it impacts our world also. Jesus said that we are to be the salt of the world, the light of the world. He told us that that's what we're supposed to be. In other words, we're supposed to impact the world for God where, where the Lord has put us. And you understand, our walking in the Holy Spirit and in Christ has a positive impact, a godly impact in the world where God has put us. But if we choose to go in sin, it also has an impact that way. Because sin in the life of God's children always has an impact far beyond himself. Now we go to the last thing. And, and what we would say, maybe we'd say, might be the most damaging. Look in chapter 4. And I'm not going to have time to read this whole first eight verses. You read those. But it's the story of Cain and Abel. It's the story of the two sons of Adam and Eve. Things certainly have changed because we clearly have animal sacrifices already established. It was God who killed the first animal and clothed the man and the woman because they were naked before God. And now we have a sacrificial system that God has already given man. And you have two brothers. One brother brings a proper sacrifice to God. One brother brings a sacrifice that's not acceptable to God. God accepts Abel's. God rejects Cain. Cain gets filled with envy toward his brother Abel. He's filled not only with envy, he's filled with hatred toward his brother Abel. And the Bible says, in the way, because his countenance fell, that, that, and that just simply means that he became enraged toward his brother. Simply because God had accepted his brother and rejected him, and he killed his brother. Now, my point is this. We think sin is benign. The Bible reminds us that sin impacts our relationship with God. That's not benign at all, is it? We think sin is not that big a deal. But the Bible says our sin impacts the whole world. That's pretty huge, isn't it? But probably the worst thing in my mind, anyways, in my mind, and, and, and I don't know where you're at with it, but in my mind, is that our sin impacts the future generations. It impacts the world they come into. It impacts the way that they respond to God. It impacts how, how they know to obey God or to be disobedient to God. It impacts the, the future generations, those who are coming behind us. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Disobedience to God never remains at one spot. It always goes out. And it always goes out further than we ever thought it would go. And it always touches lives that we never intended for it to touch. I'm sure it never entered in the mind of Adam and Eve that in their disobedience they would have sons one day and one son would kill the other son. It is the impact of sin. It is the impact today of we who are in the body of Christ assuming that sin really isn't that bad. It's the impact of a group of people that have learned to rationalize sin and to, and, and to, to, to justify sin and to... to put sin on different levels so, so that we always feel better about ourselves than, than we really are. Instead of a people who would come broken before God 
humble before God, crying out to God. As the Holy Spirit says, Tony, where are you? And as he calls your name, where are you? And our response is, Lord, I'm an undone man. I'm a rebellious man. I do so many things. I think so many things. I say so many things that are contrary to you. Oh, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your mercy. For Jesus, without you, I have nothing. Without you, I am nothing. For too long, too long I've listened to the voice of the enemy. I've sat down at that table of a compromise. I've listened to him accuse you, God, of not quite being with it. And I've justified that I can, I can figure this out myself, but God, I've messed up my whole life. And God, what breaks my heart even more, I deserve what I did to myself. But the thought that my rebellion and my rejection and my disobedience has touched other innocent lives and brought them to a place that, that I would never want them to be. God, I need you. I need you. Sin. It's ugly. It's horrible. There's nothing good about it. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Don't put it in categories. Don't think that you're better than other people. Sin is destructive. It's damning. And it always goes further than we ever thought it would go. And touch the most precious lives and souls that we never thought it would touch. What is written for us there in these chapters we looked at today, I hope we get this, is that God is calling us back. It is true, I can't do anything about what Adam and Eve chose to do. But what I can do something about is how I'm going to respond to God. How I'm going to believe Him. How I'm going to trust Him completely. How I'm going to acknowledge my failings, my sins before Him. And how I'm going to receive the forgiveness of his son. And how it becomes the desire of my heart to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit every day that God has given me on this earth. God forbid. God, listen, this, this is the heart of David, the man after God's own heart. God forbid that I should ever do anything, ever should do anything that would cause your enemies to have reason to blaspheme your name. God forbid that we should take sin so lightly. Especially when God has made provision through his son and by his Holy Spirit that we can walk and live as the very children of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This morning we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to God's call upon your life, whatever that might be. I'll be here at the front. There'll be some deacons here at the front. Also, this morning, there's going to be some deacons' wives. Some of you ladies may feel more comfortable talking to, to, to a lady. We're going to have them here. They're just here to pray for you and pray with you and encourage you. I'm asking you to respond to God this morning. Is God saying in your heart, where are you? Or are you so walking, so walking walking so closely to God that that's not even a question right now. It may be that you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That needs to be the first thing you do 
And if you feel that leadership in your heart, I'm going to tell you, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He touches us and he draws us. But you need to listen to his voice and you need to trust his voice. He's the one who will tell you that in Christ Jesus you can know the forgiveness of your sin. You can know that you have everlasting life. You can know that you are completely what God has called you to be. And if that's never happened in your life, that needs to happen right now as the Spirit leads you. But as children of God, most of us who have trusted Jesus, we need to ask that question. Is God asking us where we're at? Or are we walking so closely to him? Walking in his righteousness and his holiness under leadership of his Holy Spirit. That's not a question he has to ask. Love to pray with you if you're struggling with that. These who are at the front, they're here to pray with you, encourage you. Finally, if God's brought you to this church and wants you apart, we will receive you with open arms. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity of these moments. And I pray that as we have this opportunity to respond, that we will respond in the exact way that you're leading us. That the voice we hear and the voice we respond to will be the voice of the Holy Spirit. Lord, take all the other voices away and let us trust you completely. I pray this in Jesus' name.